From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair podcast. It's Monday. We have a pause, special pod for you today, everyone. Somewhat different from what we usually do. We're going to be talking about some listener emails. And uh, But before we do, Zach, what have you been drinking? Well, I had the opportunity to uh, spend some time down in Napa Valley uh, recently. I had a uh, really kind of nice, although very abbreviated trip. Uh, but when I was there, I had the opportunity to try some some really pretty special wines. I think the, the single biggest standout for me was a 1979 Robert Mondavi uh, Cabernet. So 79, often considered one of the, the best vintages of the 70s in Napa. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely a beautiful wine. I was struck by how... Uh, vibrant it was you know i i will uh i will reveal that definitely i think the uh the team that was presenting the wines may have opened more than one bottle before they found the one they really wanted to pour for us that is the mm-hmm. uh, the gist i got but you know <laughs> it's very thankful for that uh just a, a beautiful wine and a great example of you know i think for all of the the excitement that we have around lots of other wines lots of other regions there are times when you have one of these classic wines from a classic region like this Napa cab and you're like oh yeah there's there's a reason why this is something that people uh got super into and and remain super into um also had a really interesting cocktail uh when I was out uh, for lunch uh at a place called Angel which was a old fashioned that they made with a, um some amount of green chartreuse I didn't get a recipe uh which was really <laughs> interesting to me because obviously chartreuse we think of as a cocktail ingredient in certain cocktails and even sometimes you do see it combined with whiskey but it was really interesting to see it in this kind of very s- sort of standard presentation but with you know, a, a perceptible amount of green chartreuse, which, you know, these days with the <laughs> relative uh, scarcity of chartreuse yeah, is yeah. itself <laughs> a little bit of a luxury, but uh, it was really interesting. It, it played pretty well with the, with the bourbon, but you know, I, I, it is a reminder to me sometimes that like, you know, I think, I guess I'll just say this. I enjoyed the drink. I think if it had been made with a different whiskey, I might've enjoyed it a touch more, but okay. uh, you know, that's that's just you know it's not even a sweetness thing i feel like it's almost more of a texture thing because chartreuse itself is is so viscous and bourbon can have that kind of same kind of richness and i would have liked maybe like a sharper like a rye or or at least a spicier Mm -hmm. whiskey perhaps to kind of cut against some of that richness and viscosity from the chartreuse but you know it was delicious i certainly drank it uh (laughs) and it did not regret it so yeah no that was that was great and then i think uh you know back here in in seattle continuing my my fresh hop journey as we kind of make our way (laughs) through fresh hop season had a a nice fresh hop uh all strata uh the that was the hop variety and this one from project nine new brewery actually very close to my daughter's daycare so i stopped in a little early had a beer you know, it's a good way to good way to start the afternoon of childcare that is my life uh, when <laughs> the kids start getting out of school. So yeah, no, that was that was tasty too. How about you, Joanna? Yes. What have you had? Um, yeah, so actually, we uh, made a Greenpoint cocktails, which is was developed by Michael McElroy at Milk and Honey, I think, back in two thousand and six. But uh, it's a take on a Manhattan. It has rye, sweet vermouth, and yellow chartreuse. You kind of split oh, okay. the vermouth with ango and orange bitters. And that was really good. Um, sometimes we're just like, what do we have at home right now <laughs> yeah. that we can kind of like mess around with? So that was an interesting one to come across. And then I had a very delicious um, Chenin Blanc that I took home from the office um, from Outward Wines. Um, it was a 2021, I think from Shell Creek Vineyard. 
um, in Paso Robles. So that was really good too. Um, and yeah, otherwise just, uh, lots of wine tasting at the office. We're preparing for our end of year top 50 list. Um, so getting to taste a lot of excellent stuff. Yeah. The times are hard as I see on Instagram. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, my deepest sympathies are with you, Keith, the whole team. So yeah. <laughs> Joanna, we decided kind of with, with Adam still on vacation and, and, uh, you know, sort of an opportunity here to, you know, kind of just declutter the inbox a little bit, figured, uh, <laughs> we could, we could spend some time on this episode, just responding to some listener emails that have come in recently. And first of all, we really appreciate all of them. Yes. Uh, hopefully when you write into us, you get a response from at least one of us, sometimes more than one of us, depending on the email and our own, uh, reactions to it. Uh, and that email is, of course, podcast at vinepair.com. So please feel free to send in you know, your thoughts. If you've got suggestions for episodes, if you want to tell us we're wrong, uh, as several people will have done and will continue to do so. Uh, or right. We also like hearing that. That's nice, too. And uh, we figured we'd just take three of these and have a, an opportunity to kind of have some little mini conversations about topics that were raised or responses to episodes we've done in the past. So, uh, Joanna, you want to talk about the the first email we're going to just kind of touch on here? Yes. So um, this one was in response to our pumpkin beer, pumpkin beer episode, pumpkin spice episode. Pumpkin um, creep. <laughs> the pumpkin, yes, the seasonal creep episode, of course. And, uh, you know, we, we had discussed this coming about because of consumer demand and not necessarily because breweries are itching to start brewing, you know, pumpkin beer in June. Um, but Rob wrote in and he mentioned that, uh, I'll read it right here. You know, I'm not sure it's consumer demand pushing this either. The timeline seems to be set by chain retailers. The resets happen the first week of August, which means we need to ship by the last week of July. Once that product is out, everyone has to jump on it then. Um, and so we thought this was really interesting because um, we hadn't considered it in our conversation. Um, but it makes a lot of sense that the retailers are the ones kind of looking for the product to stock for the ultimate consumer demand, but um, something we hadn't considered. Yeah, and it's also really an important point there that Rob makes that what what you're seeing is both the sort of time lag that that comes into play here where these big chain retailers need to take delivery of this product well, you know, some amount of time in advance of when it's going to go on shelves. And also for those retailers, they don't want to be caught flat-footed, right? You don't want to ha not have the product that you're customer is looking for, yep. if at all possible. And it's really, really interesting, you know, he follows up in the email to talk about how sort of weather dependent sales spikes are for these seasonal beers like the pumpkin beers, uh, where, you know, when the weather is pumpkin friendly, you know, cool, wet, <laughs> cold, people are all about those beers. And as he points out, like this year, uh, where he is in the Northeast, they had sort of a, a, a good start early on because it was kind of cool and wet. And then they got a heat wave around Labor Day and all of a sudden like, oh, no one wants to buy this beer anymore. So it is this kind of interesting uh, reminder about how not only do it is everyone in this uh, process, especially if you're a brewery that's selling some scale of pumpkin beer or seasonal mm -hmm. beers, you have to you are beholden to these larger forces that we maybe didn't take into account, but also that, you know, you can only to some extent predict the weather. And if you've got gloomy weather in August and people are like, what's what do you got that's fall? You know, you have to kind of have product for them in the same way that these retailers do. So it is a it's a challenging, challenging conundrum um, that, uh, you know, we, we understand. But, you know, we'd still like to save the pumpkin stuff for like 
now. <laughs> now would be good. Yeah. I love that he said we can basically predict sales by watching the 70 degree mark. Yep. Which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's a powerful tool if perhaps a mildly depressing one, but it also <laughs> makes sense, right? Like if it's 82 degrees and sunny, do you want a pumpkin beer? Probably not. Probably not. No. So that one was kind of the the easiest one for us to to dispense with, but a great email. Thank you, Rob. We appreciate it. Yes, thank you, thank you. as always. Uh, but I think the the next piece that we got here was in response to uh, the episode we did about the Silicon Valley Bank's uh, direct to consumer survey, and it comes from Lucy, who who works to some extent in um, sort of digital marketing, and was talking a lot in this. In a great email. Um, I wish you know some ways we could read all of it, but uh, but there's a lot here. But one of the things that she she points out is kind of how uh, wine in particular has really lagged behind other consumer goods in terms of putting their products into these sort of, I mean, I guess we call it product placement and, and even just sort of advertising um, opportunities, advertising, but, but also the ways in which now with the sort of, um, from as she describes it, kind of the, the ways in which wineries can more and, and advertising can work on a more you know kind of tailored and uh, personalized level that they're not really getting into those channels in the way that maybe other you know beval c- uh, categories are and certainly that lots of other consumer products are so I don't what did you make of this email yeah no I think it's really interesting I, I think it kind of echoes a lot of what we talk about with wine which is that it's a little bit bit behind the eight ball with a lot of these things um, that we see you know, spirits and to maybe a lesser extent beer doing more successfully or just doing at all. Um, And so, yeah, I I think it is interesting, especially considering the way that we all kind of consume um, content these days. It seems like there are so many opportunities for uh, wine to have kind of more savvy advertising strategies Mm -hmm. um, than it currently does. And you know, it it reminded me we got another uh, email that this is reminding me of and I you know, I don't have it in front of me so I can't remember who it's from. I I want to say Lucas, but I could be wrong on that. Who sort of responded to another a piece another episode we did about wine bars and was talking about well, like shouldn't a New York wine bar want to be want Eric Asimov to write about them? And I Jonas. think Jonas, that's right. I'm sorry, not Lucas. I don't know. Getting my name <laughs> Close. <kind of> messy. <laughs> Jonas uh, L. It, Yes, there you go. Well, maybe the L part threw me off. Anyhow, the point there is uh, that I understand that sentiment, but I think this these are kind of two parts of the same puzzle, which is that wine sometimes feels most comfortable and most interested in talking to people who are already wine lovers, right? And this is something we've talked mm-hmm. about on the pod a number of times, where you can't just say that we're going to market our wine to people who have already indicated that they love wine because maybe they already have bought wine from us and we're going to keep trying to sell to them or they subscribe to a wine focused publication or they, uh, you know, purchase wine associated paraphernalia, etc. And obviously, yes, there is value in taking someone who is a proven uh, member of your target audience and maybe converting them from buying someone else's wine to buying your wine. Yeah, but that is it. But that is a sort of zero sum game. And it's and when the audience of wine drinkers is at best static and quite likely shrinking, it's also kind of not a long-term strategy that makes any sense. And what I think Lucy's email points to is all these opportunities for wine to take, whether it's uh, you know larger uh, companies or individual wineries or brands to take some of their demographic information and sort of information they have about their consumers and say, okay, well, we know that our consumer base tends to 
have these characteristics? Can we find other groups that have those similar characteristics and advertise to them and try and convince them that wine broadly and our wine more specifically is something they should be enjoying? And that to me is part and parcel with the same kind of thing about maybe you the last person, well, not the last person, but maybe you shouldn't be so concerned about getting a dedicated wine writer to write about you because in a way you're going to be talking to the same people who are probably already aware of you, who you're already, who are already familiar with you. And instead of the much larger kind of constellation of people who are not already your customers and maybe not already exactly your target audience, but could be swayed with say savvy advertising. Yeah. Yeah, this is something that, you know, she she mentions here that, you know, there's this opportunity with like utilizing data insights and algorithms to serve ads to the right users at the right time to eventually convert them. And, and that's the future of digital wine advertising. And it's something that I mentioned at the office the other day, like, it seems like some of the like sometimes wine feels very misguided. Like we, we've seen so many wine brands kind of jump on NFTs and jump on augmented reality and these other things that are kind of trendy and of the moment, but don't really, don't really have much, um, as far as we know, like long-term value, but these other things that seem more valuable or could potentially be more valuable, they just like haven't haven't considered yet or very few have um and i think that's so interesting too yeah and i think the last piece i want to say about this is that you know lucy makes a really good point in here that one of wine's over kind of writing problems is that a lot of the spaces where it was the sort of default drink for people the thing that they turned to whether it was you know dining occasions special events a certain kind of celebratory moment etc Wine is either actively perhaps losing some of those spots or is at least at risk of not remaining the sort of dominant beverage alcohol category in those moments. And that part of the reason for that is because some of these other categories have proven more adept at getting their product into those spots and in front of people who might be kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe the thing I, you know, we used to talk all the time and we still do talk all the time about like the wines that you drink while watching Netflix. But like nowadays, maybe people are like, what's the RTD I have while I watch Netflix or the Mm -hmm. seltzer I drink. And obviously a wine lover is going to keep drinking wine. But the problem for wine is, you know, I just, I don't think it's as a category, it's, you know, we just keep running into this sort of irresolvable problem that like there are not enough wine drinkers and they're not converting enough people into wine drinking to, just sort of do that, you know, just maintain. And I get it that wine is more than maybe any other category is, is harder to organize. It's harder. You know, there are many more producers even here in just this country under of all sizes. And it's not like it's easy to say, just like run and, you know, you can't run the equivalent of the got milk ad for wine, but (laughs) I don't think, I mean, I don't know. It'd be interesting Uh, in any case, but that doesn't mean that there can't be a little bit more creativity and it doesn't all have to be super big budget. You know, you don't have to run a Super Bowl ad, although wine brands have started doing that, which is good. But I do think you have to have some parts of the wine industry in some of these places and whether it's the, the biggest budget ads buys or just the right kind of synergistic partnerships and or placements, more needs to be done. Yeah. 
Zach, I'm going to let you take the next one because you had a lot to say about it. Well, I was thinking you would set me up, but that's fine. Sure, I can, <laughs> I can, I can give our last email too. Uh, so uh, this comes from Tana, and it's a response to the piece we did about wine bars, um, which I referenced earlier. And again, a great email, lots of interesting stuff in here. Um, and Tana is someone who um, is talking about. I guess basically, let's let's talk. Let's break this into two parts. Yeah, there are two parts you, here. I'm going to let you tackle the first part, which is um, that. You know, she she points out that one of the frustrations at wine bars is that, you know, even in a setting that would seem pretty uh, optimal for alternative packaging, kegged wine, etc., she rarely, if ever, sees it and indeed sees a lot of waste with glass bottles and things like that. And so, I don't know, Joanna, like, I, I know that's something that the site we've written about on the site recently. What, yes. what, what you got? Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is interesting and there have certainly been places across the country that have tried to tackle, you know, uh, wines, uh, sustainability, especially as a wine bar. And, um, we recently did a, a Q and a with, um, a man named Lowell Joost, who he owns LJ Crafted in La Jolla, California, and their whole strategy there is to be a zero waste wine bar. And they're they've come up with this um, technology to basically serve wine by the glass out directly out of barrels. Um, and so, you know, as part of this interview with him, he he talks about how you know kegs specifically kind of like having a tasting room filled with kegs instead of barrels just doesn't create the desired ambiance for high-end single vineyard wines. But also just that I think that um, that's part of the reason why we haven't seen this format really take off, um, though obviously people have been trying to experiment with it. I think the times that I've had wine out of like tap wine um, at bars, it just hasn't been great. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've had that experience, Zach. Well, I think it's one of these chicken egg problems for wine, right? Which is that this one of the selling points for keg wine when it first started getting a, somewhat popular here was like it was a good fit for a, a kind of bar that wanted to have like a house red and a house white, right? Because they knew they would have some amount of people coming through who were going to drink wine, but it wasn't their like bread and butter business. And having a keg meant that like you know the wine in the keg is uh, basically going to remain fresh and drinkable for, you know, as long as you have the keg, more or less, as long as you're not selling it over the course of a decade or something like that. (laughs) And so it's a good fit, especially because most of those bars already have obviously like a keg system, they have tap handles, it's just relatively easy. But those places were not looking for great wine, they were looking for wine that would be good enough to keep people satisfied, that would be relatively inexpensive, and that would be, you know, available. And so a lot of the early keg wine was relatively large production wine, not necessarily bad, just nothing, nothing remarkable. And, you know, wine more than any other category, I think is so well has two things that work against this format, even though I do agree that it would be good for more wine bars to embrace. One of them is, we're just it's just so tied to the the sort of primacy of the glass bottle, mm-hmm. the cork, et cetera. And that even in lots of places where quite clearly that is not an efficient setting aside waste, even just, just from a labor standpoint, from a storage standpoint, et cetera, it's a very inefficient way to deliver the wine that you're going to serve to your guests. It remains the thing that many guests associate with quality is yes. a glass bottle, a cork and all that. I think people don't take kegs seriously. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And I was recently speaking to Jason Haas, who's the operations manager at Tablas Creek uh, for a piece that hopefully will be on the site eventually. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, that's my fault. Not That's not a dig at Joanna. I'm still <laughs> trying to get edits back to her. Uh, she's been very prompt. I have not. In any case, uh, we're going to leave the making of the sausage there and uh, get to my point, which is that Jason has been a, I don't know, a pioneer, but he's been pretty... Uh, proponent yeah proponent of various alternative packaging got a lot of attention for the boxed wine he's released over the last couple years but they also do keg wines at tablas creek and he would love to do more to keg wines to be candid to say what he told me because in part because they are even less waste than uh, box wine because the keg can be refilled kind of infinitely right but he said that the problem is that yeah the just there are so few places that are willing to fully lean into it and so if they only offer one or two keg wines those wines tend to languish compared to other wines by the glass even if they're better wines for the same price you know there there are cost benefits to the keg system so Tablas Creek can sell the same volume of wine cheaper in a keg than it can in bottles and does but so even if that means the wine bar can list a, a you know, nominally better or at least more expensive wine for the same price as a glass pour, people tend to shy away from it. They just don't believe that it can be good. And I actually will say that I've had plenty of quite tasty wine coming off of a, a tap or keg, but only in places that really emphasize it. Uh, and those are few and far between, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I remember there was a place in New York that was exclusively um, wines on tap. And I think it just, it didn't, unfortunately didn't survive, but um, I agree with you. I think that if it's, if it is the, you know, the, that's the whole point of the place is to ha- offer excellent wines on tap, then um, it seems to stand a better chance than a place that has a few uh, tap wines. Yeah. And then the other piece of Tana's email that I really wanted to dig into, and this is what I spent a lot of my response to her going. So Tana, if you're listening, you've already heard or read this from me, presumably, but everyone else, you can be part of this. And and her email kind of got to the point of like, why aren't there more places that do what wine bars in Europe do? Offer minimal food, cheap wine, and kind of offer, I guess, for lack of a better word, a sort of much more approachable, much less snobby wine experience than what we tend to associate with wine bars. And, you know, she says, uh, I want to get this exact wording right. Uh, The worst thing about wine bars is wine nerds that frequent them and not industry wine nerds, but self-proclaimed wine people who collect, search, and fawn over bottles. More often than not, these people know the bottle, not the producer. Um, So there's a lot here. Mm -hmm. Uh, First, Joanna, because I probably can go on on this for a little while. Do you have, <laughs> what do you have to say in response to this? Yeah. I mean, I thought we talked about this idea that like, it seems like American wine bars were originally trying to emulate the wine bars of Europe, um, but kind of failed to do it in a way that feels more natural when you're in a wine bar in like Paris or um, in Rome, as Tana mentions. And uh and yeah, I don't know. I, I think it is disappointing, and I I agree with her to um, on that point. And you know, but but I think there are more. You know, as you get into it in your email, that there are more um, nuances to this and more um, thing, more factors that kind of go into it than people I think consider. Yeah, I think the two main ones are one is a sort of economic consideration and one is a cultural consideration. The first is that just 
as we were discussing earlier, wine's place culturally in America is very different than its place culturally in Europe on, on in broad strokes. Obviously, it's not universal for everyone in every place. In a lot of Europe, wine is something that almost everyone drinks. It's something that people have in and around their homes all the time. And while they certainly some people are maybe more wine connoisseurs than others, and some people are collectors, and some people are really passionate about it, wine as a whole is seen as a sort of you know, an integral part of uh, the of the lifestyle and something mm-hmm. that people consume, if not absolutely every day, most days. And often it's, you know, perfectly acceptable, but nothing fancy wine that they have, whether it's at home or often in these kind of wine bars. And it's a thing that people have, you know, often will stop and have a glass of wine or two on their way home after work. And as such, because that is the the sort of default expectation for a lot of people, it's very possible to make a you know, kind of have a viable business where you serve, you know, perfectly fine, but not nothing fancy glasses of wine to people on their way home for a few hours. And, you know, that's, that's your business. And you don't have to serve a lot of food, you know, maybe have a little snack items, etc. And it's great. And I love going to those places like yeah. Tana. They're fun when you're in Europe. Well, it's like but grabbing here, a beer here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, but here in the United States, wine is mostly a luxury item. It's mostly mm-hmm. something that people associate with a certain kind of environment, a certain kind of experience. They expect it to be served to them, as mentioned before, out of a glass bottle into a stemmed glass with a certain kind of pomp and circumstance that is hard to carry off in that kind of format. And so I just think that, you know, so many places I've been to over the years I, or I've gotten PR pitches from are like, we're trying to emulate the wine bars of pick a European city, Paris, mm-hmm. Rome, Milan, uh, you know, whatever, Florence, etc. And no one can make it work, really, because that's not how Americans drink wine for the most part. I mean, yeah. every once in a rare while, there are places that work. I have mentioned on the podcast before, Le Caviste, a wine bar here in Seattle that that is Parisian inspired. And it, it does about as good a job of it as possible, but it still makes certain concessions to American preferences. There are nicer glasses of wine available, and certainly it costs more than it would in Paris. There's not a full menu, but there's more food available than a lot of Parisian wine bars. And that's just kind of what you have to do because that's what people have wine expect here. And again, we yeah. talked about this on that wine bar episode. Part of the thing for wine bars is very hard for them not to be effectively restaurants because most people here do not have two glasses of wine on essentially an empty stomach and then go home. Like they want to have that as a part of a meal if they're going to have a couple of glasses of wine. Yeah. There used to be, um, well, there is this wine bar in New York called uh, La Compagnie and I, whatever, it's a long French name. And um, they used to do $5 pours you know, for a happy hour. And even though, and it effectively was that, right? Like after work, you'd go, you'd have a glass of wine or two, and then you'd go home. But even, even that experience, like the wine bar was, it's so nice. Like it's very, it's very, um, you know, it, it's, decor is very nice. The experience is very nice. The glassware is very nice. Not at all like, you know, kind of the more casual spots that you might encounter um, in some of these cities around the world. And I just think that's funny because like the expectations are even, even though you're getting, you know, like a quick glass of wine or a casual glass of wine, that the expectations are that you're in a, in a place that has this luxury to it that people have come to expect. As again, I mentioned on that episode, you go to these wine bars in Europe, and they're not serving you your wine yeah. in a glass that costs fifty bucks a, a piece. Like oh, that's right. just not how yeah. it works. And that, and that, that again, that comes back to what people's expectations are and all that. 
The other piece of this that I want to mention briefly, although it's a huge topic and I will not be able to do it justice, is <laughs> the different economic realities for operating these places in Europe versus here in the United States. And mm-hmm. to just as briefly as I can summarize what some of them are, A, wine production in Europe is subsidized by the EU and by some of the individual member nations in a way that wine production in the United States is not. Mm-hmm. And so if you're buying domestic wine, it is largely not subsidized anywhere near to the extent that wine in Europe is subsidized, which means that that wine bars and other places that serve wine in Europe can just buy similar quality wine cheaper because it is cheaper in Europe than it is here. That's why wine is cheaper there, one of the main reasons. It's also, of course, the case that wine doesn't have to be shipped as far in Europe and in many of these places, not very far at all, because they mostly serve relatively local wines. Wineries or wine bars can also buy directly from wineries, not just near them, but in many cases, anywhere in the EU uh, directly in a way that obviously our three-tier system here in the United States prohibits in most cases, or in certain states, restaurants or bars within the same state can buy directly from a winery, but that's a state-by-state thing. And if you're not in a state that has a big wine industry, you're kind of shit out of luck there. Mm-hmm. And then there are some other kind of fundamental things that have to do with the cost of wine, like the fact that many producers in Europe are growing grapes and making wine and property and land that's been owned for generations and therefore doesn't have a mortgage on it in a way that is very uncommon here in the United States, not totally uh, unknown, but mostly uncommon. And lastly, and I think most importantly, people in Europe, and again, gross generalizations, please, I understand, (laughs) spend more of their disposable income on food and drink than people here in the United States. That is changing over time. Part of it is also, you know, has to do with, let's say, social safety nets in um, Europe that are less the uh, robust here don't, don't exist thus, here <laughs> well or you yeah. know whatever um that are different mm-hmm, uh, sure. nets that have more holes in them maybe mm-hmm. and the and as a result both the operating margins for wine bars in Europe have to be don't have to be as big because they're just fewer things that the employer has to provide directly to or wants to or needs to provide directly to employees or to themselves. So it's a different economic model. You can get by with smaller margins. Um, and then when coupled with all these other factors, it's just a different it is an apples to oranges comparison. And so it's one of the reasons, though, that I think we keep running into this problem that a European style wine bar just has to either kind of make a lot of concessions to what how America works <laughs> or it can't function here. It's just the mm-hmm. truth. Yeah. It's so funny because, I, yeah, I, I think it's unfortunate, but, you know, it's such a delight when you do go to some of these cities around the world to actually have those experiences and how our expectations kind of change based on where we are. Like I'll happily sit in a wine shop and like open a book like a, you know, in Paris in a wine shop and open a bottle and be next to like a counter of meats and stuff, like essentially yeah. a grocery store and have, enjoy some wine. Yeah. And it's like un- undeniably the case that like, we would love to have that experience here. But I also recognize that that kind of experience here is either going to be difficult to pull off because it's going to be hard to find a, a big enough audience for, and, or it's going to cost a lot more. And like, right. that sucks. But it is it is not a thing where any individual operator, I think, is doing something wrong. It's just, I don't know. It just doesn't work. It can't work. Yeah, it's just, it, 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 we ain't way. in Europe. That's mm-hmm. just the truth. This here is America, as they say. Yeah, jeez. Oh, <laughs> um, well, I think this is great. Please keep writing in. Uh, we love to read your emails. We hope to do this again sometime in the future. And until then, we'll keep writing back to you. And Zach, have a great week. Sounds great. 
Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.